Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming streamlined state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. following program is produced with an artistic vengeance by a man who should know better than to hang out with his junkies. Uh, Howard Lapidus, manager of the star. Yes, I am. Is right here. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is still trying to negotiate his way from the green room to the broadcast studio. It's highly complex. I went to La Femme Film Festival. You don't have to be a femme to go to the festival. And you went. I went anyway. I saw a great documentary. Already won 68 awards. Will be up for an Academy Award this year, next year. Called Reinventing Rosalie. A brilliant documentary that is both uh, tragic in some ways and uplifting in others. Uh, it's the life story of... Um, a woman who survived the Stalin Gulag. We have an expert on the Stalin Gulags coming up a little later in the show. But we do have, I believe, the producer and director. Hi, how are you? Better and better. Congratulations Dr. on a fantastic Lillian. film. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's gotten 64 awards. Oh, I thought it was 68. I gave you four more than you deserved. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And a pleasure meeting your 101-year-old mother. Yes. Thank you so much. Does she live with you? Yes, she does. She does. We're roommates. Does she boss you around? Nobody bosses anybody. There's a lot of respect and love, as you saw in the film. Oh, yeah. And you know, her skin is soft as a baby's tuchus. I know. She's, she looks great. I mean, you know, good genes. She's got good genes. Uh, you know, uh, maybe there's some Native American and uh, black African American in her DNA because you put those. No, she's not. She's, uh, you're 100% um, Eastern or European, actually. As a Canadian. I'm the one that has the Chinese in me. Oh, what's uh, his name? Uh, <laughs> Look him I up. I don't know. <laughs> what's uh, uh, And the rest of it's... Uh, uh, you're, you, the film starts off, and we, we know that your mom survived the Stalin gulags. Yes, she did. Uh, would she ever talk about that when you were younger? No, when I was younger, she never talked about it. It was like she was in America, in the United States. She and my dad, they wanted to adapt to American life and, and just was real positive and, and nothing like I didn't know anything about it till you know, I was a lot, lot older. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. When did she finally break the... Uh, Probably in my, 20, in my 20s, I knew something about it, but, you know, just it's just something we just didn't, we knew of it, but we didn't... We didn't get into it, no. Yeah, why, why, why is it? I just I got into it with the film. Yeah, you sure did, and a fantastic job, too. And my dad was the same way. He would never talk about it. Uh, he'd always yeah. avoid it. And we took him to see Fiddler on the Roof, and we said, Dad, was it like that? He goes, it was exactly like that, except a hell of a lot worse, and no one was singing. Awesome, awesome. Beautiful, beautiful. Never talk about it. And all that thing of, you know, maybe your, your mom would say it to you, don't run, don't run. Yeah, no, she just, no, no, no. She's very cool, very, you know, was very, let me be independent at an early age. And, you know, I was, um, you know, let me go on a bus at age uh, eight to go shopping for clothes. So, mm -hmm. you know, she was cool. She trusted me. So it was great. And you got brother, you had brothers and sisters. Yeah, I had a, I had a brother, yeah, that I knew. And uh, a sister? And no, I didn't know my sister. They oh. died in the um, gulag. Oh, that's so tragic. Yeah, you know, in a tragic way. Yeah. That, I mean, there's not a dry eye in the house the first uh, yeah. 45 minutes of the film. <laughs> and the, and then everything goes through this Same. amazing metamorphosis, this incredible oh, yeah. change. That's, a, that's the 
beauty of the film. It, you know, what it's, it, the Holocaust is just a backstory and, you know, her gulag experience. But, but what really it's about, it's about somebody um, who at 86 became an actress and uh, at 90 traveled the world. At 94 was Miss Congeniality in the Miss Senior California pageant. At 97 was in a Super Bowl commercial. At 99 wrote a book and 100 uh, rode the sled dogs in Alaska. (laughs) That amazed me. (laughs) And then 101 went to the Cannes Film Festival and was doing a little red carpet deal there. So, you know, and then now she's into the film festivals and we're going all over the world. We just got invited to Monte Carlo and uh, Milan, so we're going to see what that's about. Going to Florida, uh, Fort Lauderdale Film Festival coming up um, next month. So, you know, it's it's exciting and, and you know, uh, just... It's, um, um, it's a blessing, and I think that this film is going to motivate people, no matter what age. There was a, a girl who attended, she's 13 years old. She said it affected her in the sense of, you know, now she doesn't have the pressure to decide what she wants to do with her life. Yeah, you got, you got time if you've got time. Plus the fact that yeah. if you can recover from something like the Stalin Gulag and have a rich and rewarding life, uh, you can recover from just about anything. Yeah, and she doesn't have any prejudice or hate in her. She doesn't have any negativity. Everything is positive. She just, you know, and she looks at life like that. And I think that's what adds to your years when you're not negative, when you're not hateful. And uh, it really makes a whole different person. Yeah, I saw that that there was a TED Talk on what the research shows were the things that are likely to increase your life. And it talked Uh about, the you know, uh, smoking, uh, eating a lot of red meat, blah, blah, blah. But the number one thing far greater influence than any of those physical things was, do you have friends? Do you have a support group? Yeah, I think so. And you know what? It's interesting because, you know, we talk about the red meat. Look at Winston Churchill. Didn't he live to be something like 105 and he smoked cigars every day, ate red meat, you know, he did everything wrong. So I think it's, you know, it's it's, it's your attitude, but his attitude was phenomenal. I mean, he he had a mission and he went for it. And that's kind of the same type of thing, you know, when you when you have a goal in life, when you want to do something, when you care about people. And it's not just having friends. It's having people that really give a darn about you. Yeah. Vice versa. It's I like remember they, they asked George Burns when he was like, uh, you know, 98, 99, what does your doctor say about you smoking cigars? He says, doesn't say anything. He died. So. Uh, that's right. That's exactly <laughs> the truth, you know. It doesn't matter. I don't think anything matters, you know, because everybody, you know, you, you look at a lot of these centurions and they all have a different uh, formula. And, and, uh, but the same thing, the common thread is your positive. Yeah, that makes such a difference. Uh, it's, and, you know, the you know, thing is, you, you wrote that great book about avoiding toxic people. And it's unfortunate yes, when the toxic person is yourself. <laughs> well, we're all toxic to one person or another for no reason, for whatever. You know, I mean, it's like that's just how it is. You know, I mean, you can even see it with animals. I'm m- m- little Annabella. She loves everybody. And then sometimes we'll take a walk and she'll just hate one, a dog that's in front of her. Oh, yeah. Like, Why? How does she know that? That's a toxic dog to her. You know, but um, the other dog at a block later, she's in love with. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, we're, all, we're all animals, and we all feel that same kind of uh, reaction to people. And, uh, you know, then sometimes we're, we're more intelligent, so we get to know the person and like them. But there's that kind of initial 
thought, and and we all, you know, what one can tolerate. Uh, some people can't stand narcissists, narcissists who talk about themselves a lot. Personally, I think they're entertaining. Yes, well, that, that I had a therapist once who brought that up and said the most entertaining people are also the ones who are most nuts because they're outsiders and they see things that others don't see, and they're vastly entertaining. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you need you need outsiders to give you perspective. I think so. I think so. There's and another I, uh, aspect of longevity. Get closer yeah. to the mic there. And that's yeah, uh, yeah. that's having something to do. Oh, I think, you know, if you have something, I mean, I just, like, I know a guy who's a CPA. He lived to be in his 90s and it, because he was still a CPA in his 90s. Yeah, a lot he of people like, drop dead when they retire. <laughs> oh, they do. Because there's, or, you know, you start... You start, um, hold on, in the driveway. I'm in an Uber, so you have to... <laughs> Hi, Mr. Uber. <laughs> I'm in an Uber. I, that's what my little delay was, because I was supposed to... Um, no, it's not this car, in front of that. Where's <laughs> but, um, you know, but uh, from that point of view, you know... Yeah, you have to, you invent things. I mean, look what I did. I started a whole new career as a film director. I've got six other films, you know, waiting to be in their development, different stages. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go for it. This is, I've dreamt about this since I've been 16, and now uh, I'm doing it. Jay is fantastic. As long as you got something to do. Uh, I've, got, yeah. I've got through that reinvention several times, and I'm still a living legend in my own mind. <laughs> oh, I think it's great. Because when you reinvent yourself, that's when life has meaning. Well, we'd like to have him reinvent himself as someone who isn't nuts. <laughs> yes, well, no, the fact that I'm nuts uh, adds to my intrinsic allure. <laughs> ah, I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. It, so, it, well, it, it, does, it does help. I think you have to be a little bit sugar, you know, from sugar. I don't know. I think you just have to be passionate. That's, I don't look at it as craziness. I look at it as passion. Whatever you have that you really enjoy, that's what's going to happen. You know, you just you really have to have that that joie de vivre and and just enjoy. Just do it. Well, it made me made me think of my mom when she was eighty eight or something like that years old. She bought a new a new uh, Honda. And the guy said, you know, for $600, we can give this car an undercoating that'll make it last another 25 years. She said, to hell with the car. Give it to me. She didn't make it as far as your mom to 101, but she made it 90-some years old. Good. You know, you can't control anything. No, no, that, that's the lesson of diarrhea that one should learn by the age of 18, that you can't control poop, not even your own. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. No. Try not using willpower all. next time you have an upset stomach. <laughs> we have another call coming in from an expert on the Stalin Gulag. I hear Burr Blair. Hey, Daniel. This is Daniel Jenis speaking. Daniel Jenis speaking. He certainly is. Welcome to the show, Daniel. We just, Thank you uh, very much. It's nice to call in from New York time to time. Yeah. We love hearing your voice, uh, and thanks well, for I jumping in here. California. Uh, we were just talking to Dr. Glass, uh, who uh, produced and directed and wrote the uh, the great new documentary, Reinventing Rosalie, which is the story of her mother surviving the, the Stalin gulags and then coming to America and reinventing herself over and over and over again. She's 101 years old and has a brilliant career. 101 years old? Yeah, it's, I That's met still, her the other still, night. Still trying to get it right. And she, yeah, and she is just fabulous. And if you get a chance to see the documentary, it's called Reinventing Rosalie. Uh, it's really a very inspiring film because the first 45 minutes on a dry eye in the house is you're learning about the gulags, and then she comes to America, and uh, it's just an incredible story. And it's true. And the lady is a delight. Absolute, 101, she's an absolute delight. 
So how, how long did she spend in the gulag? Because they used to give out sentences of 25 years without blinking an eye. Yeah, well, unfortunately for her, I think they got out of there after, uh, well, long enough for her to lose one child, have another child, lose another child. Wow. Uh, we know, you, you know what's interesting about the gulag? You, do you know the numbers? You no. had 25 million Russians in the gulag at one point, and 25 million of them were innocent. Oh, well, innocent of being Jews? in the gulag for political reasons. It, it was enough to be in the occupation, to be living in a town under German occupation. That was enough to get sent to the gulag. God, that's not very reasonable. Well, you know, the gulag was an industrial hub. They used, they used, first of all, do we know what gulag, did she explain what the word? No, no, we were talking about the film. Oh, okay. So tell tell us. We got all the time in the world. We can uh, go 45 minutes if we want. Okay. So Gulag, I'll, I'll say it in Russian. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an acronym. The G-U-L-A-G is Government uh, Authority of Camps. Lager, like the German Kanzlager, you know? So the Gulag was a system. It wasn't just a jail or one thing. It was an entire system covering all the parts of the Soviet Union that no one else wanted to live in. And it was free labor. So a lot of the industry that was built before the war, because it really started filling up even before Stalin, it, got, it, got, it started filling up with Lenin, and a lot, of, a lot of the work being done in the far north was all done by these prisoners. And they were all innocent of any actual crimes. There were a couple habitual criminals mixed in with them, but the greater part of them were politicals. You know, and what that means, what does it mean to be a political? It means your neighbor likes your wife, so he calls the KGB and he says, this guy listens to BBC at night. And they come and get you, and you get 25 years, and no one ever sees you again. Jeez. And you live out your life in the far north, building a canal or a mine or a radioactive. Uh, they, a lot of them were used for atomic work, you know. Wow, we had that in Walla Walla, Washington, where I was downwind from the Hanford Atomic Energy Works. The cows. Yeah, that, that, that's that, that, that little head you got growing on your shoulder. No right? kidding. The cows that provided the milk that was delivered to my house every day were drinking the radioactive runoff from the nuclear power plant, which that's is why point. my kids have birth defects. So that explains you. Huh. Well, you know, well, that, definitely chemistry. you don't need a light in the refrigerator then. <laughs> Yeah, that's, actually, my daughter's radon level is so high, she cannot be buried in the state of Nevada. Like, uh, that's the honest to God truth. I mean, but hold on something. Whenever I hear these kinds of How do you find that out? By that's what they told her. We can't bury you in Nevada. She said, I have no intention of dying in Nevada. When does it come up? <laughs> Did anybody sue? Oh, we have, they've been trying to sue, try suing the federal government. It's not easy. <laughs> I can imagine. Now, listen, the survivors of the Gulag, yeah. did they get a chance to sue? Because in 1991, as you know, the government changed, right? Yeah. So what happened to the people who were still alive and who, who were survivors of the Gulag? You know, and it wasn't just them who were still alive. It was it was the uh, the guards who served there, the administrators. It's basically like as if the, the, the German Third Reich just all survived the war and didn't have any Nuremberg. All these people remained out there, and so did their victims. Oh, there could be some real conflagration there. Well, the thing is, the the uh, there was there was never any any kind of uh, reparations for any of the uh, of the Gulag victims. The way the way the Germans, you know, even my own grandfather got five thousand Deutschmarks in, in in the nineties, but uh, for Gulag victims, there was nothing. Why? Why and, is that? Uh, is there any rationale for that? 
Well, be, because because uh, because you got the KGB in power in Russia. What do you want? <laughs> the Putin says, "Don't give him a dime." Yes, yes, but you're not going to get me on Trump. Oh no, I won't. I won't. We don't, we don't even mention that. Yeah, we'll leave that alone. No, we problem. leave it alone. Yeah, we don't talk about contemporary crimes until they're solved. Now listen, bro. The gulag was so big that there was nobody in Russia who didn't know somebody who got sent away, didn't have a relative who got sent It touched everybody's lives. And as a result, the language that came out of the gulag, which they had their own slang, their own argo, that language spread throughout the country. And all kinds of stories. Did, did, did the book mention the term Zek? Well, it was a film. No, we didn't get into terminology. Okay, well, the, 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 the prisoners of the gulags were called Zeks which is short for Zekluchone, which means somebody who's locked away. So Zek culture managed to make its way into greater Soviet culture. And as a result, everybody in Russia has a little touch of prison in them. Ah. Which is, well, I, you know, it, it kind of helped me in my own uh, adventures be, because I had read a lot of uh, Solzhenitsyn and, and, and that kind of uh, stuff. So I'd heard horror stories. And I'm going to tell you a few if you want. Please to tell us the horror stories. Okay, well, let's talk about escapes. Yeah, let's talk about that. You realize that. that these gulags didn't really have fences. They, they weren't, it wasn't uh, people kept inside of, a, like in the German camps, you see the barbed wire. Sure, they had guards, they had guard towers. People take tours now, and they take photographs and put them on the internet of the old guard towers and the old barracks. But mostly, what was keeping the people from leaving was the fact that they were so far away geographically from any kind of normal civilized life. They wouldn't survive. They wouldn't survive going through the taiga, going through the forest with the mosquitoes and nothing to eat in the cold. So... Yeah, we saw people, pictures of the people who had frozen to death in the gulag. Well, if they were frozen to death, that means they tried to run. But here, here, I'm going to tell you a nice little horror story for your, for your audience. All right. Sometimes, if two guys wanted to run away, they would take what was called a kajol. No, til, uh, sorry, not a kajol, tilionok, tilionok, a lamb. They would take a lamb with them. The lamb was a third guy who didn't know what his true purpose was. Uh -oh. Can you guess what his purpose yeah, was? Yeah, lunch. Lunch, exactly. But you needed to keep him alive long enough to get as close as, to get as far away on his own, you know, motivational power, as far away as you can get from the camp, and then you eat him out in the woods. Right. But I'll tell you, the, these camps were put in, in horrible places where there, there was no real civilization, so the, the local people would, would turn in the runaways. It wasn't like they were friendly natives who were going to help you. No, they would just turn you in for, for the vodka money. Jeez. So what a corrupt, really horrifying were, there, existence. There were riots. There, there were uh, occasions. I, I know there was a big one in Kazakhstan when the whole camp would turn against the guards, kill all the guards, and try to make a go. It. But you're fighting a country that has a professional military, and there's nowhere to go anyway. The Soviet Union takes up one-fifth of the world's land, so what are you going to do? You know, swim across the Caspian, it's kind of hard. Yeah, I tried that so once. The, the Gulag was a truly murderous and all-encompassing system. And who thought this and up so brilliantly? Who thought, who thought it up? Well, interestingly enough, the term uh, lager is from the British. Uh, it was actually invented during the Boer War. 
when they, you know, the Boer War in South Africa, yeah. when they were fighting the Dutch down there, they were yeah. fighting the, the the Boers who were in South Africa because the, the British wanted to incorporate the Dutch lands into the British Empire. They had their own Cape Colony, but they wanted Johannesburg too, and everything past the Orange River. So they went to war. Uh, you know, uh, Kipling wrote about this war, and uh, Churchill was actually old enough to have uh, fought in the war. So the British had a lot of these Boers captured, mm-hmm. and they weren't quite sure what to do with them, so they invented lagers. Lager is a Dutch word. Well, it's a, it's a German, you know, basic word. And they kept them in these camps. So that's where that's, that was the first lager. So a lager is basically a prison camp that's out in out in the out in the outside where the uh, it came to mean you know a work camp, but the, I think the original British camps didn't have them working or anything. They were just prisoners of war, but uh, the Russians were obviously you know imprisoning their own people. They weren't, <laughs> they, although there were foreigners in the Gulag, but they were mostly foreigners from from the east. Like you wouldn't have any Americans there. You had Czech and. So was uh, being a Jew a good option to have? <laughs> being a Jew, being a Jew in the Gulag, I don't, I don't, I, you know, there was there was um, a whole Jewish little uh, part far away near the Chinese border where Jews were sent to, and they were told that that was their new national homeland. Oh yeah, called yes, it was called Birabidjan. And it, and it was the most horrible place on earth, and this was actually predated Israel. Yeah. So the first Jewish homeland was not Israel. But, you know, there were many plans like this. This is in the time of Zionism and Herzl. Um, You know, it's funny. I was just on a street in East New York where they had a Herzl street. But, uh, I mean, I guess they must have been black Jews. Yeah, probably. Falashas. Falashas? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen Falashas, Burl. I've been to Israel. I've seen Falashas. But uh, the, the, the Soviet Union wanted to send all the Jews to their new national homeland. And uh, there was propaganda, and there were these amazing—there was even a newspaper published in Yiddish there, which was the only uh, Yiddish publishing in Russia. So, You know that during the Byzantine Empire, when the Byzantines were fighting the Persians, uh, the uh, head of the Byzantine uh, Empire, Heraclius, whatever his name was, he cut a deal with—at that time, there was a Jewish king— Running you some Hazars. Yeah. Uh, and he made him a, a diamond studded uh, Mogandava thing around his neck to get him to join in the fight against the Persians. And and how did it go? They, they won. They won. Well, <laughs> it must have been good uh, good Yiddish cups. Yeah. Of course, uh, Rackley's also had a, a hundred-year policy of all Jews will be dead or converted to Christianity within a hundred years. <laughs> Bro, does anybody in California still speak Yiddish? Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. There's a lot of Yiddish in the film that I saw reinventing Rosalie. They have a lot of Yiddish singing songs, you know. They had to pay big really? money for the rights to the songs, too. Weird. Well, I, I, I can't think of any examples of, uh, of uh, Jewish life in the Gulag. Life was basically a game of survival, you know. I mean, the, uh, Solzhenitsyn opens up. Have you, there's a, a very big compendium of all the Gulag stories called the Gulag Archipelago. Yeah. And it opens up with the story of Soviet geologists finding salamanders frozen in the ice. Wow. And the salamanders were found to be edible. Now, Solzhenitsyn reads between the lines, and he says, how do you know that the salamanders were edible? Who would eat frozen prehistoric salamanders? And the only people who would eat them were the Zeks, because they were kept on starvation rations. 
and they had been used as slave labor for the Soviet geologists who were breaking up the ice looking for stuff, and they found frozen salamanders and ate them. Good thinking. Did they find a few frozen now, lambs, question, too? Earl, here's the question. Were the salamanders kosher? That's a good question. No. no. It, uh, it is, isn't it? Yeah. But that's okay. You can violate any law to save lives. Yes, that is true. Yes, I, I, was, I was told that. I have been told that. It's better, better, better to uh, eat some lobster than to die of starvation. That's right. I do know that rule. Yeah, that's right. And besides, as the story goes, the, uh, the rabbi walks by the Chinese restaurant and he sees one of his con congregants in there having the barbecued pork and the <laughs> bushu or whatever. And he goes in and objects to the fellow. And the fellow says, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, rabbi. You see me order it? Yeah. You see him take the order into the kitchen? Yeah. You see him bring it out and serve it to me? Yeah. Then what's your problem? The whole meal was prepared under rabbinical supervision. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Listen, you know, where I live in, in, in uh, Brooklyn, they have uh, Chinese restaurants that serve kosher. And let me tell you something. They're twice as much as any other Chinese restaurant. Of course. <laughs> Captive market, right? Well, it's the same thing here in L.A. There's a great little Mexican restaurant where the entire staff is Hispanic and uh, Chinese and is kosher. And there's a kosher Chinese restaurant. I've been there because uh, yeah. Barb's uh, son's uh, wife uh, keeps kosher. And, uh, oh, that's all she kosher does. is a big challenge. I, I, you know, sometimes I, I, when I read a few, like I read Primo Levi about the concentration camps, and you had these uh, stories of, of people who were trying to keep kosher while being German prisoners, and it didn't last long. It's no, it's, it's I mean, difficult. They, to that do. was the survival, the survivor question. Now I got a question. I go back to this thing about the three guys escaping. Yes. And any time there's three guys, all three must be looking at the other two going, are they going to eat me or am I going to eat them? Well, no, no, no. The two, two of them would have planned it out beforehand and picked the third guy for his uh, girth, maybe his his weight or girth, yes, and said, hey, listen, we're going to escape. You're going to come with us? You, you, you think you can do this? And he feels like he's very lucky because he got picked to join the escape. Yeah, very lucky. But but the the, the uh, you know I got the, the word wrong before they it's, they call that the calf like the, the fatted cow. calf, fatted calf. So, yeah, so I don't know how many of these people were really eaten on the way, but it's certainly something. You know, it's something else I heard that the sur survivors of the gulag uh, they had such a taste for human meat <laughs> that here here in New York and Brighton Beach, where all the Russians are, they they had human meat uh, tinned for them to put in cans and then sent. Oh no, is that true? No, I don't think it's true, Burl. I don't think. No, it's it true. sounds it sounds like a horrible rumor to me. <laughs> I don't think that's for real. I don't think so either. But it was, but it was a great story, you know. Mm -hmm. Because it's not the, you know as the years pass, there's fewer and fewer survivors of the Gulag. Because you know, first Stalin died in 1953. You still had political prisoners afterwards, but not at the not not in the insane numbers. You know, like like 1937, you had million after million people sent there, and that's what ruined the whole Soviet army for, for, for when Hitler invaded in 41. You know, it's a, they killed off all his best officers. Mm. So could he recruit some for the gulag? Anybody here know how to fight a war? Listen, that's not a joke. They did do that, they, but they recruited them for for front. They were called frontoviki, people who would go on the front, who would go right into the trenches, right? The ones who were sent like a punishment battalion. Mm -hmm. They were recruited from the gulag, yes. But, they, but they had a life expectancy of 20 minutes. 
Oh, that's I'm sure all those people surrendered to the Germans as soon as they could. Yeah, they're just like the, uh, I was in the Caribbean, and they tell the story, we went and saw the ship. There was a, a German ship that happened to be in the Caribbean when the war broke out, and they could go back, or they could sink their own ship and surrender to the people on the island, which they did. Was it, I think I heard a story, wasn't it? The Curacao, public? yeah. Oh, Curacao? Yeah. But, you know, but, but the ones who were sent to the front, they really didn't have much option of surrendering because they had commissars behind them with a machine gun. Oh, that does slow you down, yeah. It, so in, in know, Curacao, they, they, they just sank their own ship and surrendered to the locals there in Curacao and waited out the war in the beautiful Caribbean. Yeah, well, that's, that's a much better plan. The other weird thing, Daniel, is there is an island... Uh, closer to the United States, I think, than Cuba, or about, about as close as Cuba, that was famed for its bat guano. Yes, what about... And, and what happened with the bat guano? What it was, it guano? all was used for the Germans. It was all used for the Germans, and the United States never did anything about it. It was so close, you could have flown over and dropped a, you know, dropped a bomb on it, and it was never touched. So what, what did they do with the ammonia? I don't know, but that they were shipping all the bad guano off to Germany. Well, it's essentially... It's of course, know. Mexico was shipping stuff uh, off from Alcoa to Germany also. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, the uh, God, attorney mess. general for the United States said, well, when we won the war, he said, with no thanks to Alcoa. <laughs> huh. Yeah, they were... Because we couldn't... America obviously couldn't ship things to Germany. There was a ban on that being as we were at war with them. But if you shipped your stuff to Mexico, you could ship it from Mexico to Germany. Burl, it's uh, it's it's time for me to to go. You gotta go. Uh, it, it's been a, yes. It's it's time for me to to head out. It's been a been a pleasure. You it's always a pleasure. How's your before you go? You gotta tell me how your beautiful wife is in her rubber red dress. <laughs> oh, she's she's doing, she's doing very well in her in her red dress, and and uh, we're living in Brooklyn now. It's. You know, oh, but, um, I, you know, just so all your wonderful listeners know, I, I turned my book in about a month ago, so Viking has it now. So hopefully, uh, at least by this time next year. I mean, I hope it's earlier, but soon enough next year the book will be out. Do you have the and, title? Uh, no in prison. No in prison. No, not no. Let's say no in prison. No, knowing prison. Okay, with a K. With a K, yes. Not a K because it's Ku Klux Klan or anything yeah. that these liberals want to talk about. Oh, we damn liberals, yeah. You've seen one, you've seen oh, them all. you're terrible. A bunch of, Ta- bunch of leftist Jews out there. <laughs> was it for Kavanaugh? Huh? Wait till November 7th, Burl. Wait till November 7th. Oh, God, I can hardly wait. <laughs> yeah. I try to be apolitical, like but it just makes me you're sick. Like nah, I probably not. Listen, you have a wonderful time. Say, uh, give your wife a hug for me. And, I'll give her a hug for you. Uh, and, uh, no more coffee for you, Daniel. No coffee. Ask, ask Howard. Yes, no coffee anymore. Ask Howard that question. Well, what's the question? About the consultancy. Oh, I will. Thank you. Okay, I'm please, glad you reminded me. And, and, and write me the answer, please. Okay, I will. This is important. I need to know about my meeting in November. Okay, psychedelic. Okay, thank uh, you for having me on. It's always a pleasure, Daniel. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks. Bye. What he's talking about, Howard, is uh, he's been being hired as a uh, consultant to a motion picture about prison life. And it's a a Swedish production with an American director, whatever. And he doesn't know what to charge him as a consultant. 
on, and he said, Howard would probably know. Ask Howard, then give me the answer. So You make it up. Make it up. Just yeah. invent it out of whole cloth. Yeah. <laughs> if it's too high, they'll say it. <laughs> if it's too low, they'll they love it. <laughs> they'll love it. If they say it's too quick, you've got the wrong number. <laughs> mm. ah. So what else is going on, Howard? Well, not too much. Uh, missed the show last week, but it's a pleasure to be back. Well, you can listen to the show online. We are, we are now one of the fastest-growing uh, podcasts uh, in terms of listenership. Ever since we went on, we're on 12 different platforms now. We're on iTunes, we're on Google Play, and uh, so every week it's more and more and more and more and more. So we're on the list of the hot list of fastest-growing podcasts. Uh, and we're getting a lot of uh, wonderful reviews, and uh, people say I'm an ob- obnoxious, uh, and they're right. And they don't mention me or Mark. Uh, yeah, they say that you're brilliant, and they, yeah. you put up with me, and it uh, uh, <laughs> works very well. They love the content. Good. And so uh, good. we're doing fine. In fact, that Dan Zupanski says nice things about us. So he has this very loyal core group that just idolizes Dan Zupanski. Yes. And so whenever someone says... Earl Barrett, Howard Lapidus' Mark Boyer show is, is insane and it's crazy. And he goes, it's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> See, he stands up for us. Well, says, they, they were the first, they were the groundbreakers. They were the first people in America to do a true crime show. And they're still doing it after 10 years. They haven't closed this down. No. And uh, people still love coming a on the fine show. Canadian. Yeah, he's a, one of the few fine Canadians. <laughs> he got married. He took time out of his busy schedule. And you know who else is doing a, a true crime podcast? That was uh, our friend Lee Miller, who did the uh, Serial Killer Quarterly. Remember that? Yes. So that was a great magazine. It was too good for the topic, was the <laughs> problem. It really was. It was too good a magazine for the, for the topic. He did a brilliant job editing that thing. It was gorgeous, and he had the best true crime writers in the world working on it. And... Uh, I think people were just stunned, amazed, amused, and uh, agog. agog and thunderstruck by the quality of it. And to maintain that was a little expensive. Oh, that's showbiz. But I had the pleasure of writing two brilliant articles. Brilliant articles. Yeah, brilliant articles yes, on serial killers. and and. Yes, those are the two articles. <laughs> I had a few contractions, too, and they were coming five minutes apart. No, it didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen. You didn't say that, did you? Yeah, I said that. I was proud of it at the time. You were, and then <laughs> and I whatever. fixed that for you. Yeah. So we take bets now on uh, what to do for the next 20 minutes. I could call the uh, director back. <laughs> never called back yet. <laughs> she never called back. Was well, she, she couldn't come call because Daniel was on the oh, line. Oh, that's right. See, that's right. Call her back. Okay. So you, uh, we, we go on bets. Standing there, we can t- take it. I'll say, uh, yes, I will tell her. Uh, Baltimore, if you're not doing please. anything, we're sitting on this end. Uh, yeah. you give us a call. Oh, by the way, uh, Howard, I, t- I kept count. Uh, uh-huh. Twelve mentions of his books. Please do. Today? Yeah, him. Yeah. Last week. Oh, last week. Yeah. Without me being here. That's right. why. He just, you know, yeah, he went all for it. Now, if she calls back in and Matt isn't there to answer the phone, then what happens? <laughs> Matt gets up in here. Uh, I say, please call back in. Love to talk to you. Love to talk more. There, I said that to her. If she sees it, she'll call. If not, she won't. She won't. She won't. That's, so that's my me, theory. With, without me being here last week, what, what did you do? What did we do, Mark? Do you remember the show last week? Uh, no. No, you don't, <laughs> you don't remember who it well was? Well done. Remember, it was a great show. Oh, it was Catherine Ramsland. Catherine Ramsland. We talked about sexual deviance. And it was I've great. It was a good show. It was vastly entertaining. I'm sorry I missed her. I no one interrupted me. It was fabulous. Yeah. It was fabulous ground, a training for my future endeavors. Yeah. Uh, she told some great stories. There, for instance, her favorite one that she told us 
about the guy who electrocuted himself by sticking his dick in a, uh, a vacuum cleaner accessory, and there was something wrong with the vacuum cleaner. Was that the phone ringing? Oh. And electrocuted him. Now, someone had to tell his girlfriend how he died. And they told her, and she broke into tears and said, I don't know why. Why would he have to do that? I swallow. Oh. <laughs> that was Catherine's favorite story. Oh, God. That was uh, where Catherine's at. <laughs> but, I mean, people, we talked about people who die, you know, because of their sexual fetish. And I mentioned to her the 400 men a year who die from having sex with their farm machinery. It's not the 400 guys every year, different guys. But an average of 400 guys a year die Having sex with the farm. Let me ask you this, yeah. okay? Because I know the audience wants to. Like, which piece of farm? Well, machine? let me put it to you this way: When they break up with their farm machinery, they don't write a dear John letter; they write a John Deere letter. Hello. That's <laughs> true. True story. True story. Uh, it's back hose. Instead of hose out back, they got back hose. And uh, this is true because the guys have a very strong relationship with their farm machinery. They ride them all day long, and they spend more time with them than they do with their wives or significant others. And uh, they can become very emotionally attached to it. And, I spend uh, more time in my office, but I don't... Well, you don't... You and the fax machine aren't getting it on? No. No? <laughs> May I suggest it? <laughs> no. No? Watch out for the peeper feeder. The, uh, oh, uh, the shredder. The shredder. Beware the shredder. That's what you're looking for. Uh, yeah. The shredder. He was the hitman for the Chinese when they tried to take over AT&T in the 1800s. Who's that? The shredder. I saw the film. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll tell us about it. It was called Party Line, directed by Carl Krogstad. It was about a Chinese plot to take over the phone company. And uh, if you ever see the film, the opening credits say starring Terrence McManus, Burl Bear, but I'm not in it. I was replaced by another actor, but they'd already done the credits. <laughs> and pray tell, why were you replaced? Uh, the guy was better. Okay. But it was an animated uh, animated film. It was like stop-motion photography, G.I. Joe dolls, stuff yes. like that. And uh, I did the voice of the Shredder, but I was replaced by a better voice talent. And when I showed up for the screening, the preview, and, and Carl took me aside and all embarrassed and said, Burl, I don't know how to tell you this, but you were replaced by so-and-so. Ted Darms is who I was replaced with. And I said, Carl, it's your film. You can do whatever you want with it. I'm not offended. No. The fact that I'm here, though, has got me pissed off. <laughs> the fact that, it, but I like the film. I enjoyed it. Good. Yeah. Did you get paid? Uh, no, of course not. But I didn't have to pay to be in the film. Carl had this great uh, thing set up where if you wanted to learn filmmaking, you paid him and he put you on on his crew. And it was bad. Man, if you can get away with that, he got away with it, and uh, he'd win all these awards. My favorite award story with Carl, however is he had a bill at Alpha Cindy in Seattle that he had to pay. Uh, it was things like 10000 or something like that. Well, he entered a film festival that he was pretty sure he was going to win because he was really good at winning these film festival awards. And the award every year was had been $10,000. And sure enough, he gets the telegram. He had won this film festival, the grand prize. And so he tells Alpha Cindy, hey, no problem. <laughs> the check's in the mail. And what arrives, instead of a cashier's check for 10000 USD, it's a pewter bowl. And he calls up and says, where's the 10000 They said, well, this year, we decided instead of giving 10000 so it wouldn't seem so materialistic, we're giving a pewter bowl. Said, What's that damn pewter bowl worth if I melt it down to pay the bills? Now, he was very upset. I mean, he was happy he won the award, but where was the 10000 It was a pewter bowl. 
tragic story. Wouldn't you be upset in that situation? Yeah, I'd also find it a good spot for that pewter bowl. <laughs> right to the forehead of whoever ran the film festival. You know, I was thinking we had Leonard Bouchel from the Real Recovery Film Festivals, uh, and I was watching this, the, the film by Dr. Glass, and I said, now this is like the ultimate recovery film. Because what could be, you know, I mean, you can recover from alcohol, you can recover from a drug addiction, you can recover from uh, uh, all manner of uh, mental illness, etc. But uh, recovering from uh, a gulag or recovering from a concentration camp in terms of stress and anxiety, that has to be the ultimate recovery. And uh, I can't disagree with that. No. And now, in the United States, when people talk about recovery, quite often they mean from drugs and alcohol. It actually doesn't mean that. Uh, it means recovering from anything that you need to recover from. And they have recovery coaches, uh, you know, here in America that are primarily for that. In the U.K., do, uh, recovery coaches are utilized for virtually everything. To, for, when you say virtually everything. Well, say, let's say everything. Well, let's, say, let's say you have cancer or you have uh, extreme diabetes or something that, that's a, a challenge for you to not relinquish your personal power to it and to set your personal goals on recovering from the stress of that experience to claim your life, right? So you don't identify yourself with your illness, you know? It's not like, hi, I'm Joe, I'm diabetic. And now, you know, but now, hi, I'm Joe. Uh, and they, they work with a lot with mental health issues. And I would like to put in a plug for an excellent support group for people with mental issues. Please do. And that is Recovery International which was founded by Dr. Abraham Lowe, who is a uh, clinical psychologist who worked with people with mental illnesses. And uh, I went to some of their meetings, and I was really impressed by the self-help techniques that uh, they give you. And one of the things that, uh, that people tend to do when they have issues is to catastrophize. Something bad happens, and it's like the worst thing in the history of the world, right? Make a huge big deal out of it. And... To think that no one else in the history of the universe has ever felt the way they do right now in this situation. That they are unique when there's probably a million people or more that know exactly what you're going through. That your experience is, isn't unique, it's average. This is an average person's response to a very unpleasant situation. And once you realize that it's not that it's a big deal in your life, but in the overall, your response to it. It's an average response. It's not out of line. Of course, you're going to feel this way. And to be able to spot and identify when you have what I call, they call imagination on fire, where you're imagining things, well, what if this horrible thing happens and you're already reacting to the horrible thing that hasn't happened, but you've created in your mind that it could, right? You've seen people do that. Yeah. They're already flipping out about something. My mom used to call that borrowing trouble. You go into the future. You borrow something unpleasant, you react to it, you make yourself sick over it, and it never happens. You've you paid interest on it. Have you heard of the ladder? A who? The ladder. Like Jacob's ladder? No. No. Um, picture a ladder that just continues up into the sky. Yeah. You know, a big, tall ladder like a fireman would use. And in the middle is Norm. Hi, Norm. And you pick the worst thing you can think could ever happen. Let's say a meteor destroys all life on Earth. That at the top. That would bum me out. At the bottom of the ladder. Yeah. Uh oh. I know that sound. It's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. Yes, it is. <laughs> hey, we can do this quickly, bro. Yeah. What's next? Magic Man Allen, the Demons of Texas on RadioLive.com. 
Say raise that record's bar to rock and roll. Say it is- 